The Nature Podcast is supported by Nature Plus, a flexible monthly subscription that grants immediate online access to the science journal Nature and over 50 other journals from the Nature Portfolio. More information at go.nature.com slash plus. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In an experiment. Why is light so fast? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speak. I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, what happens after polio is eradicated? And the space explosion that's baffling scientists. I'm Sharmini Bandel. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. Since 1988, cases of polio have fallen by more than 99%. In the late 1980s, between three and 400,000 people were being paralysed by wild polio every year. So far this year, only 10 cases have been recorded in Afghanistan and Pakistan, the only countries which still see transmission of wild polio. This is leading many observers to predict that polio could be eradicated within the next three years. And yet, the picture is more complex than the basic numbers suggest. There are two core types of vaccine which form the basis of the eradication campaign. The first, based on an inactivated version of the virus, prevents disease, but not infection or spread, and is administered through a needle. This is used to great effect in places where polio is not spreading, to protect people from disease. The second, based on an attenuated or weakened version of the virus, can prevent transmission and is given orally. This vaccine, which is cheap, easy to administer and slows the spread, has helped reduce case numbers dramatically in countries which did see active spread. However, it also presents a risk. In a very small number of cases, the weakened poliovirus in the oral vaccine can mutate, regaining some ability to infect others. This has led to outbreaks of what is known as vaccine-derived polio, and there were about 800 cases reported last year, according to CDC data. Nonetheless, public health efforts to curb both wild and vaccine-derived polio press on, and hopes are high for eradication. But that would still not be the end of the story. This Week in Nature, reporter Ashling Irwin has been investigating what needs to happen after polio is eradicated, and reporter Noah Baker called up Ashling to find out more. So Ashling, it does appear that the end of polio might be around the corner. Now, I think the whole time I've been at Nature, I've been saying that, but many people are predicting an eradication of polio within the next couple of years. But that isn't the end of the story, right? And a lot of researchers are thinking very seriously about what would need to happen next to make sure that even if polio is eradicated, that it stays eradicated. Yes, that's right. And you've touched on something really important there, which is that it 
one could argue that we should just focus everything on eradication. But if we don't have the world set up to usher in that new world where polio is eradicated, we do have the problem that it could could come back. We're still going to need to keep the virus in a number of labs and places like that, because we still need to manufacture vaccine. Uh, and that needs the virus, which means that we really have to get our containment act together. Another one which was totally unknown when the campaign started is that there are people who are born with an incomplete immune system and a small number of those people, the small number of types of these immunodeficiencies, if these people are given the oral vaccine, they can't throw it off and it stays in them and it can stay in them for decades, although it's often less than that. And while it's sitting there, it's not doing nothing. It's accumulating mutations and can revert to polio. So it is something that's a bit of a headache. It's interesting to me, people may think, hey, if it's eradicated, why do we need a vaccine? But that's precisely the reason is that there are many places in which another outbreak could happen. And I noticed that in your feature that you've written, there is a lead at the beginning of your feature, you open with a kind of a hypothetical situation in 2040, where polio has been eradicated for a decade, but there's an outbreak. Can you tell me why you open with that? Because I think that really gets to the nub of why we do need to continue studying and keeping samples of polio in labs. Yes. I mean, the key to this is that eradication is not extinction. (laughs) And I wanted to start the feature with a, a scenario that would demonstrate to people that this is not just a theoretical risk. This is something that will only be averted if all the many people in the various WHO committees and the the people responsible for polio in all their nations keep working on it and keep the barriers up. Yeah, there is a story here. It's it's a short but very powerful one. Can you tell us that story? Yeah, so we have a lab somewhere in Europe where a technician has opened a vial that had been mislabeled, and this has happened, um, and it had polio in it. And Quite soon after becoming infected, she travels to the other side of the world to visit her family who are in a war-torn country where a lot of the health system has broken down. And so she inadvertently uh, passes it on to family members. And because there's low immunity levels to polio, because there's little vaccination in in that country, it spreads. And the world needs to react. (laughs) That's right. Now, this requires a number of adverse events. So hopefully it won't happen, but it is not pulled out of the sky. I've spoken to modelers and it is it could happen. And I think surely people broadly listening to this as well as public health, health experts will still have the coronavirus pandemic very much in their minds and be aware of how quickly a public health crisis can get out of hand if it is not tackled quickly. And I can imagine a world in which there is a complacency that builds around polio because of this sense of eradication. And it is very much the message I'm getting from your future that we must not become complacent about something like polio. (laughs) That's right. I mean, in a funny way, one thing the pandemic has done that's positive is that it has put surveillance right up high on the political agendas of many leaders. That's what um, one of my interviews was telling me. And so money has gone into new techniques that can detect polio and other 
vaccine preventable diseases much more quickly. Um, and the world is working very hard at the moment to make surveillance really good everywhere, wastewater surveillance looking for signs of the virus. Um, so that we will be in a, we hopefully will be in a position to sound the alarm early on. So surveillance is one thing we can do or that policymakers can do to try to prevent something like a resurgence after this hypothetical eradication. I'm aware there's quite a few hypotheticals in this conversation, but that's what we need to do. We need to think in hypotheticals. That's very much part of the point. And then we've also discussed, you know, we need to maintain vaccine production capacity or at least at least research to make sure that those samples are there. Is there anything else that needs to be done that your sources are telling you are the next steps that need to be done? In terms of vaccination, we need to find ways of making vaccines without using live virus because then vaccine manufacturing facilities won't even need to have the virus so we won't have that containment problem and there is really exciting work going on with virus-like particles and mrna vaccines which could be used in the future to make the injectable vaccine you really do need live virus if you're going to make oral vaccine but hopefully we won't be needing that for more than another few years. So there's a lot to think about. But overall, is it fair for a listener to take away a sense of hope? Are you hopeful about the eradication of polio? (laughs) Well, there's much bigger brains than me who say that they're hopeful. So I'll I'll go with them. But I was quite taken with Aidan O'Leary's comment. He directs the polio eradication campaign because he's pointed out that The polio campaign has created a huge network of assets, whether it be vehicles, networks that can penetrate almost everywhere in the world. And these are being transferred to countries and hopefully integrated into their immunisation campaigns and their basic health systems. So the best case scenario is that as polio is eradicated, the world becomes stronger and strengthened by what it's left behind. I think we just all have to make sure that that's the way it goes. That was Ashling Irwin talking to Noah Baker. For more on this, you can read Ashling's feature all about the polio endgame. We'll put a link in the show notes. Later in the show, unusually bright explosions in space that scientists can't explain. Right now, though, it's time for the research highlights with Dan Fox. Botulinum toxin, the bacterial protein sold to smooth wrinkles under brand names like Botox, has been found to also reduce uncontrolled shaking of the head, known as head tremor. Head tremor affects around 4-5% of people over 65 years old and can lead to social isolation and depression. Previous studies have suggested that it could be relieved by injections of botulinum toxin, which paralyzes muscles by blocking nerve cells' release of a chemical messenger. But most of these studies were either small or failed to account for the placebo effect. Now, though, a group of researchers have conducted a more thorough assessment. 117 people with an average age of 65 were randomly assigned botulinum toxin or placebo, receiving two injections 12 weeks apart. Six weeks after the second injection, nearly a third of people who had received botulinum had much less severe tremors, compared with just 9% of participants in the placebo group. But 47% of participants who were treated with botulinum toxin experienced side effects, such as head and neck pain, difficulty swallowing, 
and neck stiffness. Read that research in full in the New England Journal of Medicine. Conservation of seabirds that congregate on islands to breed may seem straightforward. Protect the island colony, job done. But seabirds spend most of their lives at sea, where safeguarding them is much more challenging. Illustrating this, researchers tracked 348 seabirds of nine species that were nesting across the tropical western Indian Ocean. They recorded the birds' movements between 2008 and 2015, during the part of the year when the birds were not breeding. The team hoped that the data would reveal biodiversity hotspots, such as seasonal feeding grounds. Instead, the research showed that the birds wandered over huge areas, and no obvious bird diversity hotspots emerged. In fact, to draw a line around an area of ocean containing two-thirds of the tracked species requires encircling more than 16 million square kilometres. The authors suggest that conservation of these birds will require an ocean-wide perspective. You don't have to scour the seas to find that research. It's in current biology. Finally on the show, it's time for the briefing chat. We discuss a couple of articles that have been featured in the Nature Briefing. Shalini, why don't you go first this week? Yeah, so I have been reading a News Explainer article in Nature, and it's about problems with getting monkeys for research. And this is apparently becoming an increasing issue, in particular the problem of basically monkey smuggling or monkey laundering, as some people are calling it. Right, well, this doesn't sound too clever at all. What's the top line here? So long-tailed macaques are the species that they're mainly focusing on here, and they are used for a lot of infectious disease research and vaccine development, just sort of due to the similarities with humans. They're a good model for that. And the idea is that researchers would use captive bred monkeys that have been bred in sterile conditions to be free from diseases and things like that. And a lot of these animals used to come from China. But in 2020, at the start of the pandemic, China basically halted wildlife export to reduce the potential spread of disease. And since then the availability of these monkeys for research hasn't recovered. And from what it sounds like you're saying then, to fill that gap, there are people who are potentially trying to circumvent those official routes. Is that the case? Yeah, basically wild captured monkeys are now being caught and sent off and potentially labelled as captive bred and provided for research. Potentially also monkeys bred in conditions that don't meet the standards. So one example given in the article is that since China's now exporting fewer monkeys, Cambodia is filling a lot of that gap. But if you look at, for example, there was a report that looked at like the jump in macaque exports from Cambodia over a few years, and they're exporting so many more monkeys now that it is not possible for those all to be coming from the credited registered breeding farms. Like the numbers just don't add up. And then there's other evidence. In November last year, some people were arrested, including wildlife officials from Cambodia, charged with smuggling wild macaques from Cambodia to the US for research. Um, and again, allegedly, they were labelled as captive bred. So potentially then researchers are unknowingly using monkeys that aren't from a source that they're expecting. And this, I suppose, could have an effect on their science. Yeah, quite a lot of potential effects. The obvious one is that these animals aren't necessarily disease-free. And when you're studying infectious diseases and vaccines and the immune response, the starting baseline is actually really important. There was an example of a particular immunologist who 
got this shipment of 20 animals and was doing some preliminary chest x-rays, found one of them had latent tuberculosis, which means they couldn't use any of those animals. And if they hadn't spotted it, then you've got potentially you've got symptoms that you might think, oh, maybe that's a result of the drug, but it's actually not because you don't know their medical history as it were. So yeah, a big problem. And also just the fact that there's the welfare angle in that wild monkeys are going to be a lot more stressed and unhappy in a captive situation. But actually that also too could change your results. If you've got like extremely stressed animals, that might change their immune responses. And a researcher is quoted in this piece as saying, we know through doing experiments that healthy, happy animals result in the most consistent data. Are monkeys, as you say, are still required in medical research? What's being done to alleviate situations like this? It's going to be a difficult one to sort of crack down on. There's a lot of macaques being legally traded for search. So to try and find the illegal ones could be tricky. There are a few sort of suggestions given here, including that the research institutions should themselves be inspecting the facilities to make sure that wherever these monkeys are being bred are in line with regulations. Another idea would be genotyping research monkeys. And actually, that way you would be able to keep track of where actually the different animals have come from. So yeah, sort of interesting issue there that I suspect not many people will be aware of. So Ben, what have you got for us this week? I've got a story that I read about in Nature, and it's based on a Nature paper. And I know that you love a mystery. Oh, a murder mystery in an ancient manor house. It was the butler. I mean, no, <laughs> it's nothing to do with manor houses or anything Ooh. like that. This is a space mystery. Oh, okay. In yeah. fact, it's kind of a double mystery, to be honest with you. And it's about these kind of weird explosions that researchers can't quite explain. Weird explosions. I mean, I know there are a lot of weird signals and blips that come from space. We talk about fast radio bursts all the time and people working out where these different signals that we see here from Earth have come from. So what kind of explosions are these? I presume this is something new. Well, it is quite new, actually. So the story revolves around an explosion that happened around a billion light years away from Earth. But wait, <laughs> after this explosion, several months after, in fact, yeah. it seemed to like flash at the same brightness more than a dozen times, like as bright oh. and as powerful as the original explosion. And researchers hope that this can help explain the first one, which is something <laughs> that's called a luminous fast blue optical transients. Now, these are things that defy explanation. There's only about half a dozen or so that have been seen since they were first identified in 2018. And they all have kind of science names, but they have these amazing nicknames. The cow, the koala, the camel, the finch. And as I say, they are weird. The cow was a hundred times brighter than a supernova, but then it dimmed really quickly in less than a few days, which would normally take like a regular sort of star exploding supernova several weeks to occur. So there's a lot going on here. So we've got mysterious space explosion and the most recent one, which has been called the Tasmanian Devil. That's got subsequent mysterious flashes or flares that happen months after the fact. That's definitely adding to the mystery. I mean, first off, I love that they've named weird explosions after various animals. That's great. Good work, astronomers there. And so when they saw the Tasmanian devil explosion, I guess they thought like, ah, oh, yes, another one of the mystery explosions. And then these extra flashes happened, which were just even more befuddling. I mean, I have no theories. Do they have theories? 
There are theories, and you're right. Befuddling is the right <laughs> word. Nobody's ever seen, I don't think, anything quite Weird, like this. Yeah. And so it's these flares then, these sort of flashes, that might explain what causes these luminous fast blue optical transients. And there are several ideas that have been floating about. One is that a failed supernova, so a star collapsing into a black hole or a neutron star before it can kind of explode for real, an intermediate mass black hole consuming a star, and then finally something hitting a type of hot star called a wolf ray star. But in this case, the researchers behind this work reckon that the later flashes could support the failed supernova idea. Uh. And this is what they think might be happening, right? So perhaps a star, maybe 20 times the mass of the sun, was running out of fuel, and it collapsed, leaving a dense neutron star or a black hole inside the remnants of the star. And whatever's at the center is potentially spinning around and firing out jets of energy, kind of like a lighthouse. So that's what we're seeing here on Earth after the fact. Because I suppose they would have had a bunch of theories so far to explain what they'd seen and then these sort of periodic flashes suddenly meant they had to come up with a whole new explanation or or potentially throw out some of the old ones. I mean, this is obviously kind of speculation currently, but what needs to happen now is more research, but particularly apparently determining the mass of the object that made the flashes would help pin down what was going Mm. on, right? So if it was a huge mass, then probably it was this intermediate black hole that was causing it. If it was a bit smaller, then potentially it was the failed supernova. But I think what this does show is that there are explosions very different to sort of the classic supernova that are occurring in space right now. But wait a sec, if they're getting these sort of mysterious signals and they don't really know the mechanism, how can they work back to figure out the mass. So in the article, they say that when you're measuring a fast varying signal, you can use how quickly that signal is varying to estimate the size of the object that's emitting it, okay? So high speed would indicate that the object is rapidly rotating, suggesting that it is a lower mass thing, so potentially a failed supernova, for example. Oh, I see, as opposed to the intermediate black hole. And I guess they're working on this as we speak? Yes, the researchers expect to find a lot more of these. And the Vera C. Rubin Observatory is currently under construction in Chile and will be hopefully running next year and expects to find absolutely loads (laughs) of these. And of course, this is a mystery, right? Or it remains a mystery. But potentially, it might tell us a little bit more about what happens when stars die, if that's what it is, Mm. right? Because we always think of supernovas as these kind of giant explosions. But perhaps it could be that there's a lot more going on that we don't really have a full idea of just yet. Just like a classic murder mystery, maybe it'll be who killed the giant star slash intermediate black hole. Well, I'm sure we'll be at some point in the future reporting on the solution to this mystery once the uh, clever space detectives have solved it. So thank you, Ben and listeners for more on these stories and then also where you can sign up to The Nature Briefing, which is an email newsletter, which will send you more stories like these. You can check out the show notes for some links. And that's all we've got time for this week. As always, you can keep in touch with us on X. We're at Nature Podcast or you can send an email to podcast podcastandnature.com. I'm Benjamin Thompson. And I'm Sharmini Bundell. See you next time. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? 
Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.